Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. If you consider the offline purchase process, you as the consumer walks into the store, you look at the product, you in the fashion world, for example, you try on the product, you know the color, you can see the color. There's no, you know, it's not a green dress that turns out to be blue when it arrives in the post. You can see that it fits you. You can see the price right there and then, you know what you're paying. You can you can touch it, you can feel it, and you can walk up to the check checkout, you can pay your money, have it put in a pretty bag for you, and then you're the one who's in charge of delivering that home. Online, pretty much every part of that journey, apart from the price, is outside of the control of the customer. The Product Startup, Episode 22. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. So in the last episode, we talked with Megan Cox of Amelie Beauty. She talked about her Wink brand lash and brow oil that she found by experimenting on herself to solve her problem of diminishing eyelashes. So she created a formulation and then started mass manufacturing it. And her journey started in her dorm room at MIT and took her across the world to China and back. So if you haven't heard that episode, make sure to check out episode 21. Also, before we get started, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes Australia. Brissy John wrote, so much great info on how to get a product created, and Philip is a pleasure to listen to. Hey, thanks a lot for leaving a comment on iTunes and letting me know what you think of the show. It's definitely one of the only ways that I get comments back on how I'm doing, other than uh, you know the number of downloads that I get every week. And now on to today's episode. Chloe Thomas is the author and creator of e-commerce Master Plan a business that helps e-commerce entrepreneurs make better decisions. She's also the host of the e-commerce master plan podcast, the number one e-commerce podcast in the UK. So today we're going to dive in a lot into online sales and marketing, a lot of tips that we can all apply to our own businesses. So let's get started. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, Philip. It's awesome to be here with you. So I'm really happy to have you on the show because until now we've talked to a lot of product founders and small business owners that have created products and uh, taken them to market. And some of them are really good in social media and marketing, uh, but we haven't really had a great overview for somebody that's starting out and they, they need to kind of create their own plan. So I'm really happy to have you on so you can talk about that. Can you give everyone a little, little bit of an idea of your experience and background? Yeah, of course I can. Uh, so I've been working in e-commerce for over 10 years now. I started off working client side for a high street retailer in the UK who had a big mail order operation. So um, always found the buying and merchandising and product side quite fascinating, but um, but it's not anything I've ever done myself. I'll be honest about, apart from producing books, uh, but it's not really something I've done myself. Um, so I'm really all about getting traffic to the website and making sure it converts. And uh, about I've been running my own business helping people do that since in one variety or another for about the last eight years. And four years ago, I founded e-commerce master plan, which is, um, my, my kind of 
business wrapper for, for everything I do to help e-commerce business people make better decisions in their business. Because that seems, seems to be the number one challenge is what do I do next? Or alternatively, what it is what I'm doing, what I should be doing. And I produce a podcast, books, uh, courses, mastermind groups, do a bit of coaching all around helping out those kind of people, really. Awesome. And we'll definitely link to some of that in the show notes. And I know you've got some freebies out there for everybody listening to. There are always stacks of freebies on the website. <laughs> so um, I think that there is a page, uh, freebies on the top menu, um, should anyone want to go and go and try and get hold of all of them. Um, but yeah, there's, there's always free stuff going on. So for somebody that's just starting out, they have a product that they are finished doing the design and they've got some of the manufacturing sorted and they're looking to start working on their marketing. What is maybe the first few steps that they should take to make sure that they're approaching it in the right way? Well, I suppose the the first thing is to understand who the customer is that you're trying to target and work out what the right way to get the product in front of that customer base is. Because depending on the product, it can sometimes be that you're better off jumping onto a marketplace rather than trying to create your own um, website straight off. Mm -hmm. Or by marketplace, I mean anything from Etsy, so the more specialized end of it, right the way up to Amazon or eBay. Um, And then it can also be worth considering going down the wholesale route as well. So I think the first thing to do is to make sure that your product is one which you're going to be able to to get enough noise and get enough traffic to the site in order to be able to drive sales yourself. Because putting up a website is only the first step. You've then got to find a way to get the traffic there. And that can either be very easy or very difficult. Right. Absolutely. I've seen some figures that say that a e-commerce site converts on average at two to four percent, four percent being on the high end. If you're doing a really good job uh, compared to Amazon, that might convert in the 20, 25 percent range just because the people that visit Amazon are already in a state of wanting to purchase. Oh, com- completely. And, you know, all of us Amazon purchasers know how dangerous that website is. You know, you go on it, you see something, like, oh, I'll have that. And then it arrives in the UK, Prime arrives the following day. I think it's two days in the States. Right. And it's like, oh my God, more Amazon parcels. What was I doing yesterday? I wasn't even drinking. And I've got all these Amazon parcels because they've just built that trust with the consumer and, and they've done so much. So it can be the right place to go. But I mean, if what you're doing is, uh, something in the craft or the textiles market, then Amazon probably isn't the right place to go. But I guess the the, the key uh, the key angles which make it really strong to build your own website is um, I would guess it boils down to kind of two key things. One, and these you don't necessarily have to have both of these, but if you've got both of them, then then it should be should be really good for you. One is. Is your product kind of like newsworthy enough and interesting enough that you're going to be able to attract an audience on social media via a Kickstarter, um, be able to go out there to bloggers and get them to write about you? So that softer side of marketing, is your product interesting or, you know, or, or get it on TV? The other one would be, is your product obvious enough in a keyword sense? So if you're selling jewelry, for example, what one person types into Google as silver jewelry or amber jewelry or women's jewelry is totally subjective compared to what another person will put in, which means the whole SEO and paid traffic angle, so paid keywords on Google AdWords, is going to be really difficult for you if you're going down the jewelry route. So, whereas if you're selling, um, oh, I had a lady on my podcast who designed the ultimate miso soup. So, someone who's Googling miso soup probably 
wants miso soup. So you, A, mm -hmm. you're going to do well on the search engine because your site is all about the thing that, that your customer is going to be searching, but also the um, the keywords should convert if you go down the Google AdWords route. So those are the, the two big things. So I wanted to touch on one of the things that you said. Mm. You said if the product is something that people can connect to, or at least that's how I interpreted. There yeah. was two guys that we had on the show previously, Matt Hoffman, Eric Palumbo. They have this unique product. They make miniature construction materials like cinder blocks. That was probably one of the products that I've seen just take off almost virally because of the nature of the product. You know, they show a picture of it and the product markets themselves almost. Yeah, that, that's a perfect example of the sort, sort of business which, or the sort of product which it's not going to work. Amazon might work, it might not work, but it's kind of more of, a, of an impulse piece and a wow, that's so cool piece. And that just is going to fly on social media. You're going to be like, easily able to get press coverage, blog coverage, et cetera, podcast coverage about it. And therefore, that's when I would definitely go build your own website. So let's look at the other side of the coin. Like you said, the jewelry. Mm -hmm. We've had people on the show that do something that's maybe a little bit harder to differentiate, for example, textiles or clothing, where you have a lot of competition. Is that the point where you'd say, okay, maybe I need to be on a larger e-commerce site where I get traffic sent to me? I th it, it can be a tricky one to work out what the best route forward is with those businesses because there's kind of so many angles that could impact on it. You know, if you're a um, if you're a jewelry designer who's got a really key angle, they know they've got quite a unique customer base. You know, if you're you, you're doing um, kind of the more the rock end or you know it kind of identifies with the movement then you're probably going to be able to get the blog coverage, the podcast coverage, the softer coverage, the PR coverage that's going to enable you to build your brand mm -hmm. and get you out there. If you're just great at creating really beautiful jewelry, but there's no kind of real differentiation to it, then you're probably going to, going to find, you may well also build your own site, but you're probably going to find that an Etsy or a Botica, which is a jewelry specific marketplace, those are stronger ways to get your product out to the market. It doesn't mean your product's any less good, any less quality, any less desirable. It just changes the way in which you can market it. Right. You might end up spending way more effort, you know, time and money to try to market your site and compete against all the other noise that's out there in your niche. Exactly. You you have to look at the product in a bit of a, a bit of a cold and heartless way and go, if I was a jewelry blogger, would I want to blog about my product? Is there something sufficiently interesting about it? You know, and do I have the budget to make this be the piece that features in Grazia or Vogue rather than something else? And if there's not something particularly interesting about that piece, as beautiful and as marvelous as it is, you're, you're going to struggle down that route. So you've got to kind of find some other routes. While we're talking about channels, you were talking about e-commerce. Do you have an opinion on multi-channel commerce on if people should open up a brick and mortar when they should do that? Or is it all basically case by case, depending on what the founders really have in terms of their vision for the product? Wow, there's a tough question. Um, it's interesting. I see, I think I see more offline businesses launching a store than I see online businesses launching a physical store. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, where I see simply because of the if you get used to the the online um financial setup you have very low overheads you know you don't need a lot of space um and renting a store is ridiculously expensive if you're not used to that all of a sudden you've got manpower that's got to be there all the time you've got to have enough right. stock to fill it all the time you've got to keep it pretty clean it 
and all this, there's all this extra rigmarole. So often it, people don't quite get there. So I see, but that doesn't mean that the face-to-face -face model isn't worth pursuing. But I think if, if anyone's going to go down it, I'd start off with, you know, maybe a pop-up shop or being part of a, a local market or a specific market that fits with that product, which it's a great way to get extra feedback as well. But that can be a good way of, of, um, of testing out the face-to-face -face, deciding if you want to go down that way. Down yeah, that route. Absolutely. So even maybe looking into consignment or something like that, where you're just you're using other retailers' existing footprints and just coming in with your own product and offering it at a huge discount, just for the opportunity to try it out in a retail setting. Oh, definitely. And it's it's one of those ones which, if you're fashion or jewelry and those kind of areas, if you can build a relationship with a local boutique owner and maybe offer to stump up the money for the wine and cheese to do mm. a, an evening for their list where you mm. showcase you their products, that can be a great way of getting the right people to look at your product, to give you feedback and to generate those sales. Well, okay. So let's go back on e-commerce now. Let's say one way or another, I think everyone should have a website of some kind and it might not be a site that you're selling your product directly from, but it's at least a site about your product and the company and it refers some traffic over to where they can purchase the product. Would you maybe agree that in whatever case, everyone should have a website at this point? Definitely. And it should capture email addresses too, so that all that work you've done in getting products out there and getting people excited about your product, at least you're gathering something from that. You know, you're getting them to follow your Facebook page to to follow you on Twitter, Instagram, if that one's relevant to you as well, but also that you're capturing email addresses there. So you can keep people updated on the story of the product and what's coming next. Oh, great. And yeah, so you hit on two things I definitely wanted to dive into. Oh, cool. One of those is capturing email addresses, which is easy if you already have a some sort of an online or e digital product, but maybe it's a bit more difficult if you have something physical because uh, you don't have something uh, to trade in the, for the email address. And I think people or a lot of consumers are used to trading something for it. So what would be your plan in that case? I, I'm so glad you asked me about that because it's one of the things I find most fascinating about the world of, of e-commerce. I obviously straddle kind of both worlds. I straddle the B2B world of, you know, giving away a checklist or a download or an ebook and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. We've already said my site is full of freebies in order to get that email address and that, that B2B strategy of giving away knowledge to get emails and, and so forth. And obviously you, you can't do that in the e-commerce world, but I'm forever amazed by the stats I hear from people who are running straightforward pop-ups simply saying, sign up to hear about our latest news or sign up to be the first to hear about our sale. They're not giving anything away. They're not giving away a discount. They're not giving away anything physically. They're just simply saying, if you love what we do, sign up so you're hearing more about us. And people are still getting getting really solid sign-up rates from that. So don't think that you need to, to give away your margin to get that sign-up. You can simply say, would you like to sign up for our emails because they're full of awesome content? Um, and I think if you keep it on brand, you put a couple of trust symbols in there as well, you know, like you promise not to spam them and so forth, you will capture quality email addresses from your quality customers. That's a really good point that you brought up about not necessarily just offering a discount. Uh, so recently I clicked on a banner for a service that digitizes some of your analog memories, like photos and uh, oh. VHS tapes and that type of thing. And I didn't buy right away. They didn't convert me. And then 
I noticed that every day I waited, the coupon code that I was sent got like higher, right? And so then it just became a game for me to see how long can I wait? What is the biggest discount you're willing to go through? And they went up as high as 60% and they started with 10. And at that point, I lost all confidence in whatever price that I was paying online as being the true price for that retailer. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting the way people do that because I think... By all means, in, in, in some sectors, and that sector is highly competitive, um, you are going to see people offering a discount to get the sign up. But you should only, you shouldn't just keep discounting and discounting because it erodes trust with the consumer. Because the, the savvy consumer will go, yeah, just, just like you were. How low are you going to go? How low are you going to go? And then you go, my God, you were trying to rip me off by getting me to pay the price that's on the website. And that's just, that's not a good way of creating a trustworthy relationship with the customer, especially when it's a site like, um, I'm guessing with the site you're talking about, you have to send them your precious memories right? in order for them right, to right. back them up. It's like, you've got to build trust, trust in that scenario or the customer's just not going to do it. Um, I mean, for me, any, any promotion you run has to be designed to get the customer to do what you want them to do as cheaply as possible. So whenever you're starting off with email sign-up gathering or whenever you're starting off with you know, trying to encourage that first purchase, you've got to at least start off with your best margin position on that offering. So in the case of an email sign-up, with not giving anything away to get that email sign-up, to get your benchmark of response. So then if you do start going a 10% off voucher code, a free PMP voucher code, a add-on free gift when you order the product or something, you've then got a benchmark to see how much that giveaway increased the response by. Mm -hmm. You can easily work out what that cost, or you should be able to easily work out what that cost you. And then you can decide whether it was financially viable to be offering that for the uplift you got in sales. So you have to set those benchmarks before you start giving away, because you may find that to add a giveaway only increases response by say 0.5 percentage points but it's costing you an extra $10 per customer. And all of a sudden that's, whoa, that's really not worth it. Totally understand. And initially you mentioned about telling a story and I want to kind of pull at that thread a little bit because I've seen some smaller brands succeed really well by giving a sort of behind the scenes look at their operations, uh, including maybe creating the prototype for the product and testing it and going to manufacturing and giving them kind of an insider's view as if they were in on the factory floor or on the on the workshop floor and people will absolutely sign up for things like that you know especially if you put in some video content and some extra things that you won't find necessarily on the website yeah i th i think the um the more you can do online to build a relationship with the the human being who is there considering buying from you then the more likely they're going to be to buy from you. If, if you consider the, the offline purchase process, just to, just to make it really clear in everyone's heads how important this, build, this trust building activity is, if you consider the offline purchase process, you as the consumer walks into the store, you look at the product, you in the fashion world, for example, you try on the product, you know the color, you can see the color, there's no, you know, it's not a green dress that turns out to be blue when it arrives in the post. It, you can see the color. You can see that it fits you. You can see the price right there and then, you know what you're paying. You can, you can touch it, you can feel it, and you can walk up to the check, checkout. You can pay your money, have it put in a pretty bag for you, and then you're the one who's in charge of delivering that home. 
online, pretty much every part of that journey, apart from the price, is outside of the control of the customer. So they have to trust you that the photo represents the product, that the, the information you've given represents the product, that it's going to fit you, that you're going to be good with customer service, that you're going to deliver it to them in one piece when you said, et cetera, et cetera, that the price they saw at the beginning is the price they pay at the end. There's not suddenly a, a 20 quid um, postage charge. So we have to go a lot further than the offline world does to build trust before someone's going to buy from us and telling the story of the product and showing them the humans behind the business. You know, it, at minimum, you should have a really high quality about us page, not that just gives your address and a contact form, but that says, this is how we came up with the product. Here's some photos of the people behind the business. This is who works in our, in our warehouse, you know, and it, the more you can do with that, especially if it's a, if it's a product you've created and manufactured to help people understand the product, to make them feel bought in, to make them feel like someone who's in your corner, who's backing you, then that's going to make them so much more likely to actually transact and also so much more likely to then tell everyone else about you. Right. So you're trying to foster that relationship as much as you can by creating a connection and maybe even getting some feedback. So it's not just a one way conversation, right? So how are you engaging the customer or making sure that they're hearing what you're saying and giving them the opportunity to give you their input? Well, I think that the input part really comes towards the to once they bought from you. Mm -hmm. So that's the point at which I definitely have a review system that's asking them to come back and leave a review. I'd also have a, a private Facebook group for customers, which scares the pants off some people, but um, but is a really powerful way of building that relationship even further. You know, so we're, we've um, you know you launch with one iteration of the product, and you're trying to decide between a couple of other iterations. If you've got a Facebook group with a couple of hundred people who bought the product and you go to them and go, we've got these couple of ideas. What do you guys think? It's like, bang, you just get this phenomenal um, input coming back into the business, but you also get them feeling like they're part of it. And just put yourselves in the shoes of, of a customer, you know, think of, of a brand you love and they come to you and say, we're thinking of doing this with our next shoe. What do you think? How much more likely are you to build the shoe, to buy the shoe that someone that you've given feedback on that was listened to, you know, that's, it's like, it's, it, it's so powerful in both directions. Um, I think prior to the point at which someone's purchased, then having like a web chat function on the website is a really simple way of, um, of enabling that Q and a relationship to start and making sure that that kind of pings up in front of them at the point where, you know, people are, are, are are really engaged. You don't want it pinging up on the homepage. You want it at the point where they've started exploring the product or they've got stuck in the checkout. Yeah, I've seen that on a lot of pages where if I leave the browser idle, the chat will automatically pop up and say, how may I help you with this product today? Honestly, I've never used that before just because I've, I've thought that it's just somebody on the other end of the world or maybe even a chat bot. And so <laughs> I might be old school, but I haven't, uh, I haven't really tested that out yet myself. It's an area which is getting, it's just started to get a lot of, um, a lot of press about tactics and methods. You know, previously it was just kind of seen as a customer service channel, but in the last couple of months, people have started revealing how they've been using it as a sales generating channel. Mm -hmm. You know, we worked out that if we pop it up here and we say this, then we're likely to get them talking to them. And we've worked out which of our customer service reps are the best people to be on it. And they then work to solve the customer's problems, engage them in a, in a conversation and get them to buy. And 
there's a lot of interesting science and tactics going on along going on around that at the moment, especially with the bigger retailers who've got the volume coming through. No, that's interesting. I'm sure they're able to test things really quickly and, mm. and and iterate. I wanted to touch on the comment you made about the Facebook group. Are you saying that we should limit the group to people that have already purchased from you, or is it also a group of people that maybe like your brand or w what they've seen you project as your values and culture, and they just want to connect with you at a deeper level before they buy? I think it, it's a tricky one. Um, if you're only selling via your own website, so you know exactly who's bought and who hasn't, then I'd have separate ones. Mm -hmm. Maybe have a Facebook page for the general public and then a group just for your customers. Um, I say that partly because you want to segment the opinions. The opinion of someone who's put their money where their mouth is and has bought your product is considerably more important to you than someone who keeps saying they're going to buy it. Um, so I would I would aim to keep those separate. I've experienced that myself when we're going through the prototyping stage and we're getting some feedback from customers. You will get a lot of feedback that some some of it might even contradict itself. But by once you get customers to actually spend money, that's the feedback, like you said, has the most value. Someone taking their wallet out is a pretty big deal. <laughs> it's very much a retail truism or adage or something we always seem to be saying in retail, which is that if if you ask a customer what they want, you won't get anywhere near as much truth as if you look at the data of what they actually did, especially with kind of segmentation and targeting. You can ask them as many times as you like, you know, do you, which of our, which of the categories on our website are you most interested in buying from? And it will be totally different from if you actually track what they actually purchased, where they actually went on the site. So if there's kind of, you know, if you think of it as a hierarchy of data, you're far more interested in purchase activity than you are in browsing activity than you are in, yeah, I like that activity, you know? Right. It's um, really important to remember that. You said that one of the first things that we can do whenever we throw up a website is to capture emails. What's maybe the next couple steps? You know, we talked about creating an about page and, and creating some engaging content to start this relationship and conversation with the customer. What is the next step after that? Well, the key first thing to do after you've got the email address is to deliver on whatever promise you made to get the email address. Mm -hmm. And that really comes into an email welcome sequence, which these days are so easy to do. Um, you do them, you can do them very easily with just MailChimp, which is, I think, free up until you've got a couple of thousand people on the list. So it's um, it's really easy to do. There really is no excuse excuse not to. Um but your first email you, you send them should deliver on that promise. So if you promise them a voucher code, it gives them the voucher code. If you promise them interesting information about what's going on behind the scenes, it includes interesting information about what's going on behind the scenes. And you deliver that really quickly because the when someone gives you their email address, they're testing you out for the first time to see if you're worthy of their trust. So you've got to prove that you are. Then that welcome email should that welcome email sequence rather should then go on to educate them about your business, who you are, why they should buy from you, why your product is great. And also, you know, include those all important call to actions to buy, whether that's from stockist, Amazon, or from, from your own site. And those welcome sequences, they can be just one or two emails, or, you know, sometimes if you've got a really complex product, they might be 10 or 20. It really depends on, on the, um, on your, on your, buying process of your consumers and how quickly they buy. But at the same time, you can start it with one email. So, and then build the second email when you've next got a chance to build one. So there's no excuse for, for not starting.
Yeah, that's a very good point. And would you say you subscribe to a similar model that maybe Gary Vanderchuk talked about in his book, Jab, Jab, Right Hook, which is provide value, value, and then you promote a product and then value, value, and then do it again? Yeah, I, I, I ascribe to the, um, to, the, to the wider theory of don't just try and sell. But I think when you're, when you're selling, when you've created a, a, a business to sell a product you've designed physical product that you've designed, it can be quite hard to think of three things to say on the value front that don't in any way suggest buying the product. Mm-hmm. You know, so it may be that you go, um, you know, here's the, the welcome email delivering whatever we said we were going to deliver. The next one is an email telling people all about how you created the product. Now, you're going to put a link in that to buy it because you'd be crazy not to, you know, you're not going to send them a li- send them an email saying, "Here's here's the really cool way we designed and created our product. Isn't it awesome?" I'm not going to tell you how you buy though, because right. you right. might actually want to buy. So you you kind of because the product is is fully central, you can't give in the same way as you would in an, in an information setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to end up um, putting the call to actions in, and then you know you've got other great things like um, in the world of trust, if you've got multiple products. People like to buy what other people like to buy. So if you're doing, if you send them an email showing these are our nine best-selling lines, then that's it's working on the great information, the great trust, but it's also showing them a big, big fat call to action as well. So you can you can manage to get some really nice, warm, um, jab-style um, sure. content out there. But you're you're probably still going to end up with some kind of sales call to action in there, just because that's it, it. Actually, gets to the point where you'd be doing the customer a disservice if you didn't put a link to buy. Yeah, understood. In some of the emails that you get, I'm sure you get emails from other retailers, and you might shake your head a little bit. What are some of the issues that you've seen that are maybe the top one or two problems that people have when they're writing these types of emails? Oh. Well, there's, there's, of course, you, you always get the email that shouldn't yet have been sent, <laughs> which is <laughs> right. way too easy to do. I did get one, one the other day, which I think may have made it. No, it did make it into the book. Um, my latest book talks through all these different stages that we, we're talking about today, and it's called Customer Manipulation, um, How to Influence Your Customers to Buy More and Why an Ethical Approach Will Always Win. But I, um, I had this email that someone sent which said, um, when you opened it up, the first line was, dear failed prospect. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was like, nice one. And they did actually, I think if I'd have done that, I'd have just gone, oh, I'm going to pretend that never happened and hope that, you know, people hadn't opened it. But they actually (laughs) sent one the following day with an apology in the subject line and then the actual dear Chloe in the, um, in the, in the email itself. And I was like, no, that's just, that's just, um, just encouraging me to go and find the one you screwed up on. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was quite a funny one. I'm glad I'm in your failed prospect list. It'd be interesting to kind of see what their tactic was then at that point. If now that they consider you failed, what, what is their, uh, strategy to get you back onto the train? Oh no, that, that was quite obvious. It was, cause it was an invitation to an open air champagne reception on oh, top wow. of some hotel in okay. London. Yeah. It was, um, it it was come to our beautiful event this summer and um and we'll convince you to buy from us nice. so uh yeah that that was a b2b one that wasn't a b2c company but i i think the the other challenge people have is 
is working out what to say. You know, we, we kind of live and breathe in our business and we forget that even the what we find dull and commonplace and something that, that we take for granted isn't for our new customers. So get listening to, so what I, I find when you kind of got writer's block and you can't think of anything that you can say to encourage the customer, you're like, oh my God, I've got to send an email out this week or I need another idea for my welcome sequence or my post-purchase sequence or something. What am I going to say? What do I do? You know, it's a bit like blog, writer's block as well. Mm-hmm. Go back to those, those customer reviews, to what the customers said. Um, I'm also a big advocate of taking the kind of the free text responses um, and putting it through a word cloud. So, you know, where, you, yep. where it makes yep, yep. words bigger and smaller, depending on frequency. And then using that to go to take a, a, a stab at what's important to your customer base, you know, and then that quite often can be great at getting rid of writer's block because it's like, oh, oh, the biggest word on here is customer. And I haven't talked about customer for weeks. <laughs> I better send something out about customers. Um, so that that can be really helpful as well when you get those those kind of blocks. One other thing that I've used that for as well is to use the same terminology that your customers use. So sometimes someone may refer to your product as uh, something suited for a couch, but you're, you've been using the word sofa or love seat. And it might be something minor, but by mirroring some of that language, you're able to have a better connection with them. I can completely. I did it for... Um for a client of mine who we did a two-stage email sign-up sequence. So when someone signs up to their emails, they then land on a survey page that asks them a couple of questions like, um, they're, they're a travel business. Mm-hmm. So it asks them, why would you, why do you, uh, which bit of the area do you like coming to? Um, who do you travel with? You know, lots of radio buttons. So single choice answers. And then it has this open box of why do you come here? And we got so many responses that we chucked them through a word cloud. And it was really interesting that we normally talk about it being dog friendly. We talk about the gardens um, and we talk about cottages because they, they rent cottages. And um, it, the biggest words were beaches and relaxation. And we never talk about the beaches and we never talk about how relaxing or how picturesque the area is either mm-hmm. in the views. So we're like, wow. Um, right. <laughs> Time for us to tweak our copy somewhat. Um, so, yeah, that it's it's really it amazes me what you can learn from from those little little word, word clouds. Let's say you don't have any customers yet, but you're looking to tailor your brand or your marketing approach. How can you get that feedback? I know a lot of people talk about A-B testing and things like that, but at some point you're starting out with nothing and you're just having to kind of take a guess at what your audience would respond to or an educated decision. How would you go about doing that? Yeah, I, th- I think the problem with A-B testing is you need a certain amount of traffic or volume before mm-hmm. it becomes statistically significant anyway. So certainly in the early stages when you're trying to move fast, if it takes you a month to get enough data, it's it's just too slow. I'm whenever I, I come up with whenever I meet with someone who's like got a really good product or a really great idea and they they're saying to me, how do I go about you know, launching this online, like, right, before you spend a penny on marketing, on the website, on any of the rest of it, go get yourself a market stall in a place where, you know, your customers are, you know, if it's high end, um, you know, rent a, rent a space for the day, you know, a stall for the day in one of the big malls in England. Or if you're, if you're, you know, relatively simple and you just want to quickly get some feedback, go to a great, to a local market and rent a, rent a stand for the day. And just take your products, even if you haven't got enough volume to sell, just take the products along. And 
ask those people some questions. Very similarly to to you know, to Philip, I know how you you suggest people should do it in their prototyping stages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's to but the angle becomes slightly different because you're kind of going, would you buy this? How much would you pay for this? Um, and then those who would buy it and who would pay for it, you say, right, what social media platforms are you on? You know, do you mind if I ask how old you are, etc.? And you use that to kind of quickly get some ideas about the type of person who's going to be buying this product. And you know, you can even say to them, where would you expect to see this advertised? Where would you expect to hear about this? Where would you expect to go to buy it? And that can very quickly give you an idea about where where your marketing could go. So do you find that people are pretty forthcoming with those answers or are you having to uh, treat them with something or incentivize them to get them talking? Well, that's a really interesting question. It's been a very, very long time since I've done it myself. Um, I'll be brutally honest. Um, I think it, it's with, em- with anything. You'll find some people will, will be quite forthcoming and some people less so. Yeah, yeah. Just stop trying to sell to me. I'm just looking at your product and yeah. run right away from you. But you know, if you if you if you spend a whole day on the stand, you only get a couple of good answers. At least you got a couple of good answers. You're better off than you were the day before. Absolutely, yeah. Some data is better than no data. Also, just to kind of take that to another level, if if you're selling to a community where there's a really passionate forum in existence, um, you know, a traditional forum or a um, or a Facebook group or something, and you can get the permission of the the admin to post some pictures of your product, explain the product, and get garner feedback there that can be another great way of doing it so you don't necessarily actually have to leave your desk no that's a great idea and i've actually done that with a lot of my products is that i'll join a couple groups especially if it's a niche that i don't know enough about and kind of get a feel for the culture and see what people sharing and how they interact with each other and the like you said the words that they're using the things that are important to them and that gives you a better overall picture. It's still a little bit difficult because you can't just lump somebody that likes baking into a certain mold, but at least it gives you a better idea. Yeah, it's a start it's a starting point, isn't it? You mentioned social media, what types of social media they use. How would you go about creating a social media strategy for a new company that's just starting out? Oh man, you're asking all the tough questions here. <laughs> um I would start off by identifying one, possibly two social media channels that you're going to really focus on because you've got to do it well. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also want to get, if you you think that social media channel is going to work for you and it doesn't, you want to know sooner rather than later, which means you really need to focus on it. You know, doing, splitting your effort across three for six months and then discovering two of them don't work when you could have really focused on one and discovered after a couple of months it didn't work so you could move on to properly focus on another is um, is a much better use use of your time because you get answers faster. You're still putting in the same amount of time and effort, but you get the answer quicker. Yeah, that's really good advice. I was just going to ask a little bit deeper question mm-hmm. then. For example, each social media channel has their own way of communicating to the people that are on it, Instagram, Facebook. And there have been a lot of changes recently on the algorithms and what floats to the top or what people are sharing and what they see. For example, Facebook is, is so much more difficult now to get some of that attention from your target market, even from people that have liked your page and have connected with you. I know everyone preaches, well, you just need to create shareable content or valuable content or provide value through social media. And I understand the words that people are using, (laughs) but the mechanics of actually creating that is just so difficult. And at least in practice for me, for product that is not, like we mentioned earlier, that doesn't sell itself, what type of content could somebody that sells, let's go back to your jewelry example, what would their strategy be? Yeah, it's... um. 
it's really it's really challenging because as the social media platforms get noisier and noisier, quality content becomes more and more important. But yet you can still be producing great quality content, but it still might not be seen because you're not getting the engagement to cut your way through the algorithms. So you can quite still quite often end up having to pay money for it and pay advertising clicks. But at the same time, if you get the content spot on, then it can, you can, it can be either very cheap with the clicks or it can be, it can actually go viral naturally still. Um, I think for a, for a jewelry business, you've got to have fantastic content, um, fantastic photography of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, again, go, going back to my, my slightly terrible example earlier of kind of the rock focused business, you know, the rock chick angle. If your photography matches the look, if you're becoming something of a known designer yourself, then if you can share bits about what you're up to, get people to buy into your story and really get that photography right, you're probably going to find it a lot easier than the person who's just making a, another set of silver jewelry. Mm-hmm. that doesn't stand out um and that's why you know it can be it can be a, a bad idea going down the social media route when you could be doing other things so if you're kind of like that bog standard jewelry i'd go for an etsy or a botica first and foremost you're still going to have to work that platform but at least you're somewhere that's already got traffic because you could spend an awful lot of time trying to generate that traffic on facebook or instagram etc and not really getting there it's worth a test probably but um, I'd be more more harsh with the results. No, and I've definitely experienced that myself on Facebook. Early on, there was a trend in these 500-word blog posts, and then a few people started touting the advantage of these 2,000, 2,500-word blog posts. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be one of those people. I'm going to add tons of value in this post. It's going to be an end-to-end article on this one topic. And you know, I publicize it in all these different Facebook groups, and I get like six likes and maybe 10 clicks. And you think, okay, I definitely missed the mark somehow, but I don't even know how I missed that mark because you're not getting that feedback to say, hey, you know what? It was too long or it didn't hit the content that I was looking for. But the the interesting thing on that is um, one of the, uh, it might be BuzzFeed or one of the other big Facebook content publishing companies, they published an article called, um, oh, was it? it was something about cannabis being a cure for for dogs in, with cancer or something. It was something utterly, <laughs> utterly ludicrous. Or, you know, cannabis will fix your sofa or something. Yeah. And um, and they, if you actually click on the link and go through to it, you'll find a blog post which they've written under that headline which says, we created this blog post to see if anyone actually ever reads our articles or if they just like it anyway. And, um, and basically all these people had liked this ludicrous story Despite the fact that actually, if you click through, they went, the first line said, this is not a real story. So I think, I don't think you can judge the quality of your blog posts based on whether people like them on Facebook or not. I think you can judge the quality of your Facebook posts based on whether someone likes them or not. But then that comes down to, you know, where, where they're appearing and whether they resonate with that specific audience. It can be, it's a whole science in itself, Facebook mm-hmm. advertising. But if you've got a really interesting product, like the the miniature um, miniature blocks, is it? Yeah, yeah. The miniature blocks guys, you know, there are one. There are some fantastic groups on Facebook of very passionate people into construct the construction industry, into build it yourself and hacking, and that you know, there's about five or six different really passionate. Um, groups or trends that you could tap into with that, where people are going to see the imagery and go, I get it. I want it. 
that's brilliant. So you can see for them how, you know, it'd be quite hard to do Facebook advertising badly. Whereas for another business, it just becomes, it's really, really tricky. And often in that scenario, I think you need to try and find something which is easy for you in the same way as Facebook is easy for, for those guys. Yeah. Or, should, or just get a bunch of different cats, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cat, cats always works. No, that makes me feel a lot better. Also makes me think that I just need to uh, restructure the headlines of my articles. What about Instagram? We haven't really talked about that much. Do you have any tips for people that are looking to branch out in Instagram? I know it's very you know, image-based and it's, it's a bit difficult on Instagram because you can't click on any links. You have to go back to the bio of the person that posted the photo unless you put maybe something in the photo that's like a coupon code or some way to track. It's re really difficult to see if the, the engagement that you're getting on there actually turns into a sale. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the first thing is to make sure your, your profile is working for you, you know, with a really clear call to action to come through to your website. Um, so that's the, the first thing to do. The second thing is then to, you've got to kind of plan the content in advance and make sure the quality of the imagery reflects the quality of your brand. Um, it's not just a case of, you know, if you're a high, if you're a high end brand, then it can't just be kind of scrappy little photos here and there. So that one, you, you need to be careful of the, of the, that the quality is representative and then it's it's about just trying to build that that listener or not listenership it's a, it's a visual platform chloe uh, but the build the following and i think where where people seem to see some really really good responses on instagram is when they're paying influencers to share their product in the same way as you do an influencer outreach program with blogs or with mm -hmm. pr you can do that on instagram with high highly followed Instagram people, not necessarily celebrities. They can just be highly followed in that particular niche. Often money changes hands for those. Um, and that is okay under the, um, under the legal structure of that platform, but that could be a really good way to very quickly grow brand awareness and get people coming through to your website. No, that's a really great idea. And while you were talking, I was thinking of other ways of growing traffic to your website or to increasing sales. Do you have any tips for people that are looking to reach out to influencers on YouTube or maybe other blogs? I know some of them have started charging for it and it could be a little bit tedious for someone that's just starting out. They might not have any employees and they're having to do all this research to find the 200 influencers in their space and then email them one by one directly with a customized pitch to say, Hey, I just produced this product. Mm -hmm. And would you be willing to review it or give away so many units to your audience? Well, the first thing I would do is I'd get rid of the tedium of the research and I'd use Upwork to create a, a research brief and get someone else to do that for me. Um, and I make sure that that research brief is, is, you know, it's clear of what sort of sites you're looking for, mm -hmm. what sort of bloggers you're looking for. But I'd also make sure that research brief, brief is gathering some stats to enable you to prioritize what it comes back with. You know, so um, number of Twitter followers, number of Instagram followers, number of Facebook page um, followers, especially whichever um, social media channel you're going after. You know, if you're going after Pinterest, it needs to focus on that one. Because, and you could also ask the person who's doing the research to go to a tool like SimilarWeb, uh, which right, will give right. you an estimation of the number of traffic, amount of traffic to that website. That then enables you to, you know, maybe they come back with a hundred different sites you could go to. You can then sort that based on 
traffic volume or sort that based on number of likes. So then you can you can decide which ones are the most important ones. I think the the outreach is more powerful if it comes from the person behind the brand. Unfortunately, <laughs> people might not like to hear me saying that. But there are ways of speeding that up. So in if you're using Gmail, you there's a tool called Canned Responses, which enables you to autofill a Google email with um with a subject line and the content. So then you can just add in the the bit of personalization in there. Yep. So that that saves a huge amount of time. I think you have to go to labs in settings to turn it on. But um but I use that a lot for podcasts and various other bits and pieces of what I do and it God, it saves me so much time. Uh, not me, mine are handcrafted each one guys. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to stoop to Chloe's level. I just wanted to, <laughs> to just throw that out there. You should. It saves so much time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I absolutely love that tool. And you know that there's other mail merge tools as well. I would I wouldn't recommend doing a mail merge, but at least it could create the drafts for you and um then you can tailor the drafts that way. I mean, and I think the other thing I'd say is don't feel like if you've got a list of 100, don't feel like you have to do them all on one day because if they all respond on the same day, you're not going to be able to get back to them quickly anyway. So it's fine to do five a day over the course of a month or so, which is why having some way of prioritizing them is really important because you want to put the most important one first, of course. And then don't forget to um, to follow up with them. There's another Gmail tool called Boomerang, as in um, mm -hmm. the stick you throw and comes back. And... Um, that costs, I think it's about $14.99 a month. But it, when you send an email, you can tell it to bring that email back into your inbox if they haven't replied after X number of days. You can also use it to pre-schedule emails, you know. So if it's like midnight and you're doing these and you don't want someone to know you're working at midnight, then you can create all these emails and schedule them to go out the following morning at 10 a.m. or something. Or if you know they're in a different part of the world, schedule it to go out in the right time zone for them. So that's a really handy tool that I've only started using about a month ago, but I'm using more and more and more. Yeah, absolutely love that tool as well. Yeah, great tips, Chloe. And I'd love to talk to you about all of this stuff in more detail. We haven't even touched on uh, branding, offline stuff, pay-per-click advertising, remarketing partnerships, oh, and, and any of the good stuff. So we're going to have to have you on the show again. Before we do that, could you give everybody maybe your best tip for if they're just starting out with their business and they're looking to grow and they need to market, what should they be spending most of their time on? Oh, wow. Ouch. Um, I think that the thing which you have to do is to find a source of quality traffic to get it to your website. So I think certainly in the early stages, the focus has to be on, right, what are our 10 ideas for marketing and getting traffic to the site? Let's start with the first one. Go, go at it. And if, if after a couple of weeks, we're not getting the results we wanted, let's try the next one. And let's try the next one. So that could be, so you're, you're kind of doing kind of a quick and dirty test of all of them. Because as we know, social media, it takes months to fully pay back. Google AdWords takes months to properly optimize um, mm. and, and so on and so forth. And PR, you know, it can take months and months before you, you hear anything. But if you start off and you've, you're posting on Facebook really good quality content for two weeks, that's really interesting, hitting the right groups, you're really going for it and you've got not a single click through to your website, then you can be pretty certain that there's probably something else I could be doing first to create myself a bit more traction. Great advice. And 
Also, we haven't had enough time to get into all the detail, but wanted to throw up the link for your book, Customer Manipulation, How to Influence Your Customers to Buy More and Why an Ethical Approach Will Always Win. And I have to say, it's actually really affordable to get it on Amazon. So go ahead and uh, click on the link and uh, give Chloe a shout You know, if you need some help with that. And Chloe, can you also mention where they can find you and where they can get some content like your podcast and other freebies? Of course. Um, I will just say about the book, it goes through um, the five stages of getting a customer to know about you, then to give you their email address, then to make the first purchase, then to make another purchase, and then to become a total screaming advocate. So it really does cover in a lot more detail 99% of what we've been talking about today. So I I think you'll all find it really useful. I was just going to say, I actually just bought it. Um, so everybody that's listening, I'm not a, uh, a paid infomercial. I just thought this was like really cool stuff. And I'm an information junkie. So I'm on Amazon right now. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you very much. Um, where you can find the rest of what I'm up to is at ecommercemasterplan.com. There you can find the podcast, which is totally free to air, goes out every week with a different e-commerce business from those who've just launched through to, we had tesco.com on a couple of weeks ago. And um, that's the one of the fifth largest retail, the fifth largest retailer in the world. So we really do cover it all. And you can also find lots of various freebies and downloads and other products and bits and bobs on my site. So just head over there, ecommercemasterplan.com. Awesome, Chloe. Thanks again for providing just so much value in one hour. This could have really easily gone on for another (laughs) couple hours. So thanks again for coming on the show. And I look forward to you having you back on hopefully pretty soon. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's all I've got for today, everybody. Thanks for listening. I put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode 22. Join me next time as I speak with Tamar Lucien, one of the founders of Mental Happy. Mental Happy is a service that sends a personalized cheer box with an assortment of tools, treats, handmade crafts, and a personal note curated for the recipient to help them feel better. Tamar was inspired to help others feel good with Mental Happy through her own moment with life's lows, including a falling business and a failed relationship. So tune in next week to hear that episode. Lastly, if you've brought your own physical product to market or know someone that has, I'd love to have you on the show. I really appreciate your support, everybody. I read all the comments and questions and definitely try to incorporate them into the future episodes that we have here. Thanks again for your support and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Belitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.